Amina Sila, PhD, is an educator, entrepreneur, international development analyst, an experienced nonprofit manager, and urban policy analyst. Amina combines her expertise and experience in nonprofit management, education, youth development, public management, and international development to help nonprofits, local governments, and private institutions from a variety of vantage points to improve service quality and strengthen institutional capacities through training, education, and strategic planning. She is the current CEO of the Global Youth Innovation Network, Jean, a network of youth entrepreneurs and rural microenterprises who are committed to act as hunger fighters, change agents, and innovators globally. Amina is the CEO of Chrysalis Global Solutions, a capacity building organization that helps organizations transform into high producing, high impact organizations. Amina is an avid promoter of youth development and a mentor for entrepreneurs at the Tony Elumilu Foundation. She has served as a grader for the Mandela Washington Fellowship, Youth African Leadership, the Young African Leadership Initiative, also known as YALI, and as a subject matter expert for the World Bank. Pap Sambe served as chairman and CEO of the Global Youth Innovation Network, GENE, a youth-run and led network of more than 6,000 young leaders, entrepreneurs, innovators, and farmers in approximately 100 countries. Pap previously served as the youngest and first non-American president and CEO of Phelps Stokes in Washington, D.C. There, he provided leadership and vision in globalization and investing in a new generation of global leaders, educators, entrepreneurs, students, and citizens with particular attention to people of color and indigenous affiliation. Pap is currently the Global Vice President and Executive Director for Ashoka Africa. He is a recipient of the Great Heart Award from the Gandhi Research Foundation, the Leadership and Excellence Award from the NIMBA Foundation, and Next Generation of Leaders Award from the Africa Diaspora for Change. Pap and Amina, welcome to the show. Welcome back to the WTF Podcast. In this episode, we are talking with Pap Sambe and Amina Sila of the Global Youth Innovation Network. And Pap is also the Global Vice President for the Ashoka Foundation. In this episode, we are focusing our conversation around youth entrepreneurs on the continent, what their needs are, and what the development community and others in the funding space can do to meet the needs of this population. I'm excited about this show because we've had many conversations about the youth bulge and the potential opportunity and, you know, let's say, let's face it, significant challenges around motivating a new generation and hearing their insights, I think, are going to is going to be a good kind of primer on what to be thinking about as you finance and fund youth programs programs and projects. So excited to hear more. So without further ado, let's hear what Pap and Amina have to say. So Pap, tell us about the global... Lydia, do you want to say anything before we get into it? No, just really excited. I mean, obviously, um, youth are uh, and continue to be sort of the lifeblood of 
um, the continent's kind of like workforce development and and just so many other uh, important priorities and initiatives. So happy and excited to be talking a little bit more about this topic. All right. So welcome and Pap, tell us about the Global Youth Innovation Network, Gene, and why you started the organization. Yeah, thanks. So thanks a lot. Thanks for having me, especially uh, having me with uh, Amina on the show. So quickly, just maybe to give you a little bit of um, how did Gene uh, come about. Um, it was a long story, but I'll try to make it short. So everything pretty much started with um, uh, a conference that we had in Cartagena in, in Colombia that was organized by different organizations, including uh, some UN institutions like uh, the International Fund for Agricultural Development uh, and other you know, national organizations like CTA in Holland, Aqua in, uh, in um, Colombia, Palmares in Brazil, and you know, a few other organizations. So I was invited as a keynote speaker to talk to 200 youth uh, about youth employment. And uh, it was a five-day conference where uh, pretty much, you know, you had adults and you had youth, you know, a bigger number of youth, as I mentioned, 200. And during the five-day conference, adults were the only one were pretty much lecturing young people about how, do they, about how they can create jobs for themselves, how can they solve their problems, and so on. So for me, uh, that was something that was really uh, different from what I understand and what I know, having studied an organization at a very young age in, in, in Senegal, and uh, knowing that we can really believe and rely on youth. So I challenged the organizer at the end of the conference to just you know, ask them one simple question, you know, what can be youth role, youth themselves, can, what can be their role in uh, solving their own problems? even identifying it and coming up with solutions. Um, so the, that question triggered a lot of uh, conversations, but also created a lot of differences between organization and uh, people in terms of uh, viewpoint. So few organizations decided to take on the challenge. Uh, one was um, an organization that I was uh, working for at the time, Falsax Foundation, and then the International Fund for Agriculture. Uh, decided really to take the challenge. Those two organizations mostly, the others really didn't really buy into the idea. So we decided that we'll test out a youth model where young people will themselves identify their problems, will come up with solutions, will uh, uh, try to implement those solutions as well. And then adults will be only invited to provide support, coaching, mentoring, and resources. So we planned it for seven months and ended up launching it in Benin with the support of, um, back then, uh, the president of the African U Union, the former president of Benin, uh, Boniyai. And we brought in uh, uh, 200 youth again uh, from different parts of the world and 1,000 youth from, uh, from Benin and almost 200 organizations. And the young people really led the, the organization, the planning, the facilitation, everything until the end of the conference. And then they came up with two things. One they call uh, one recommendation they call the the resolutions, and uh, uh, another one they call the recommendation. Resolutions meaning what they are resolute to do themselves as young people to take ownership of their own uh, uh, their own future, and recommendation which is what they were asking adults to do for them to to support them. 
so that's how really we um, launched the Global Youth Innovation Network in Benin. And then from so there... So what is the overall objective of Gene? So initially, the overall objective was just to uh, create a youth-led program where we can uh, get youth, young people to, uh, to be the champion of their own job creation uh, through... Uh, training, knowledge gap, and then access to finance. So the overall was just youth entrepreneurship, creating, developing a workforce uh, movement for young people in in this um, sector of agriculture. But that has evolved uh, after three years because after three years there was a lot of learning that we had. I think we were, which really kind of changed the organization to become more. Uh, a youth-led organization focusing on youth employment and youth entrepreneurship uh, across different sectors, agriculture, tech, and so on. Okay. So, Amina, you are now at the helm of the organization. Tell us a little bit about your background and what is different about your leadership. Okay. Um, thank you for having me again. Well, for having us, especially with uh, Pap, you know, as the founder and the person who actually conceived of this. So my background is in social services. I started out as a social worker and then I decided that um, I actually wanted to be involved in policy. So I went back to school and um, decided to be on a policy side of things. And uh, I wanted to be involved in crafting the policy and be the one that who actually train people on how to write good policies because I truly believe that the right policy in the right hands can be implemented well. But if you ha- you can have a very, very, very good policy, but if, 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 if it falls into the wrong hands, then it will be very like bad. But you can have a bad policy on the other hand and you can give it to the right person and then they will make some kind of impact. So I just really wanted to be part of the people that was crafting and not only crafting, but also training people and implementing. Now, as being involved with Gene, I always was on the fence watching, you know, Pop was doing all of this and the, all of the um, other members of the Gene network were working, but I was on the fence. I was watching you know, Pop do his thing. Um, he was very hands-on from the beginning, very involved with all the gene coordinators because we have coordinators all around the world, right? So I came in from a very different angle. From the onset, I think I told them they would be very angry with me because I'm not going to babysit. I'm not going to hold hands. I'm going to be the ones that's not going to be, you know, I'll be the ones pushing and I'm not going to hold hands. My approach was just trying to make each chapter very independent, and then this will allow them to be more sustainable. So I'm a more, you know, kind of like teaching people how to fish uh, 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 way. Um, so the beginning was very rocky, you know, because um, everyone was trying to figure me out. And I was also trying to learn about the landscape that each one of our um, coordinators were in and also trying to understand the needs of each country. So, yeah. How many chapters are there, um, Amina? We have 88 chapters active chapters right now it's about six thousand and those are, are those national those are national chapters regional chapters can you these are national chapters um so in the countries that we are operating in so for example in um 
In Togo, we have Fabrice. In Ivory Coast, we have Ivory Coast, we have Mali, we have Gambia, we have Mauritania, we have Togo. So we have uh, Madagascar. So we're all over. Um, so each region, and when I said I was trying to understand each country, that's exactly what I was trying to understand. Um, and I was trying to get us from that um, funding mindset of what are donors giving and moving towards what the, what are the needs of the youth, the youth, the young people within my country. So that, that, that was what I was trying to understand and also trying to get our coordinators to understand that we can't keep going after the funding. And I think we've talked about this before, Michelle, in terms of it's okay to say no because you don't want a mission drift. And it's, 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 a, it's a learning curve. We're trying to learn that it's okay to say no. Um, and that's what I'm trying to bring now to Jean. Like, it's okay to say no, it's okay to walk away from funding, but it's very difficult, especially if you're struggling and then I'm coming in and telling you, oh, you can walk away from the money. So this is where we are right now. I'm trying to be more of a teaching you to be sustainable as opposed to, oh, you know, holding hands and moving on forward. Not that it, that was bad pap, you know, no kumbaya. So. <laughs> No, maybe just, just to add on that, I think uh, Amina is absolutely right. She's being uh, humble and nice here, but um, she's the one who really brought um, um, the whole youth-led approach. Because like she said, um, when we when we started, we were doing a lot of hand-holding, especially from me and from my time, because we had a big consortium of uh, partners. We had a little bit of funding, so every chapter was really depending on, um, on the global um, leadership of the organization. And, you know, it's really tough and complicated because you have to talk to the coordinators Saturday night, Monday night, you know, help them help them write their proposal. When Amina took over, the first thing she said was that, you know, Pat, I have a different style of doing things. I believe that, you know, if it's a youth-led model, then we should then really lead the whole movement and drive it, not to really uh, support them, coach them 100% from the global leadership aspect. And w what you see here is that, from the um, from my approach, which was dependent on global partners, uh, once you do, once we uh, you run out of money, there is a problem because everybody's looking for guidance from you, the coordinator and the local chapters. Uh, but if you compare that to Amina's approach, which is really the youth led, you know, let me just take help them, support them from a distance, but they're the one who have to identify their problems, come up with solutions, and I'll just give them guidance. Then you see also. Uh, some chapters were really strong when I was there, started you know, going down because they cannot find the global leadership there to, to hold their hands. And then you see really chapters who really believes in the youth-led model as we were talking about, starting emerging and having their national independence and their financial independence. So that's really what Amina was able to do, which is the initial goal of the organization, which we couldn't achieve. So... We, we, we totally fell from my time and my team, which Amina is really building up right now, and it's working very well with the team. So thanks, Amina, for that. Don't be shy to reclaim it. Okay. <laughs> it sounds great that, you you know, the evolution of the network really is focused on sustainability as kind of the first driver. So having having your chapters think about how to sort of keep their own sustainability efforts in play um is is definitely sort of one of those key leadership traits that that um that that never gets old so 
um, glad to hear that of the evolution of your fine collective thinking. Um, so as youth entrepreneurship is being treated by many development institutions as this, you know, fountain of youth and this answer to the youth bulge in Africa, um, there have been various efforts to capacitate and fund startup entrepreneurs, um, to mention YEP in Gambia, where your work is focused. So, Amina, can you talk a little bit about your experience with donor-funded youth entrepreneurship programs that the GYIN has implemented? Yes, well, well, that is a problem, right? We, they talk about youth bulge, and yes, there is a youth bulge, but I think donors seem to be doing everything when it comes to young people. So we have an alphabet soup of interventions that they keep there doing from the arts, business incubation, capacity building, fashion, to vocational training. Well, some of the issues we know tend to dominate uh, um, and I mean dominate and receive a lot of funding. Like right, currently, currently, you know, migration has been the thing. But one thing I've noticed is that you know the donors are giving money to you programs, but the money that they're giving is actually shrinking. So right now we're trying to understand whether this is uh, an issue of trust. Um, do the donor agency not trust young people and their organizations to run activities that are going to make an impact? It's one question that I've been asking our young people you know, re recently. Yes, with the um, youth entrepreneurship program in the Gambia, um, Gene is a implementing partner. So they have programs and then we implement them. We did the agriculture and um, rural transformation program or the ART, the art, which is a 10 month youth program that has been funded recently uh, with money from the EU and the Dutch fund. Then the entrepreneurship, leadership and information technology, or we call it the elite summer camp program that started since 2016. And every year the funding shrinks and shrink and yep is funding that. So we have all of these programs in, in the Gambia that's been funded not only by uh, YEP, but also the Ministry of Trade, and the National Youth Council, um, also the, um, uh, um, what's I think of NEMA, which is the National Agricultural Land and Water Management um, Development Project that was, um, that's actually, I think it ran, it ran out in 2019, the funding for that ran out in 2019. So we have all of these programs and as implementing partners, what we're seeing is that the funding um, is it's, 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 um, shrinking in those spaces. And then this is one of the reasons why I my the model that I keep, which you know stems from the mission of of, of Gene, is sustainability youth led program. So we need to find other sources of funding and not just dependent on donors because it shrinks. So you, what's happening? What I'm noticing with 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 these donor program that's been funded is that you're constantly chasing the next fund, constantly writing proposal, a prone proposal, a prone proposal, just to get that. So we're trying to shift that focus into what can we do? We're already doing things. We're already providing training. Why can't we just start selling those services? What services do we have as young people that we can actually um, transform and make those into um, money-generating activities? So um, we're trying to move from that donor dependence and moving towards, and I, you know, goes back to the question I asked, what's going on here? Um, is there a lack of trust that the donor agencies will not give the funding? And I think the only 
one of the things about Gene, I think, is that because of the, the global element of it, I think that's why there's a trust. So I keep thinking if there was no, if we didn't have the global and we didn't have all of those other, other the, the, national, the international office in the U.S., will we get what we're getting today from these um, donor agencies? So, Amina, um, more generally, what are the challenges for these, um, particularly the African youth entrepreneurs who are part of Gene? Because I know it's a little bit more global than, than just Africa as it relates to funding or investment. So I know that they're engaged in different types of businesses. How are they fundraising for their businesses outside of whatever funds or technical assistance they would get from a donor-funded program like YEP or something like that? What are they doing beyond Nothing to leverage funding. Nothing. It's all about chasing the funds. And that's why we want to change that um, way of thinking. Gene, that's really what we're trying to do is trying to get them to start creating their own businesses. So, well, I'm speaking for the Gambia right now. So what they're doing, what we have starting to do in Gambia now for Gene is to start creating value added businesses, start doing training, start doing mentorship and selling things you're already doing, just start selling the services now. So that's where we are because if there's no funding, the offices in Jin are struggling to um, pay their bills. And, you know, as Pop said before, when we started, there was funding available and that money was being funneled to the um, local chapters in different countries. But since I started, we, we, meaning here in the U.S., we're not going after the funding. We're not going after any kind of funding. We are allowing them, meaning the G- different Jin Jin chapters, to go after the funding and and, 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 and when, once they get the funding and then they'll be able to fund the programs and services. So there are a lot of challenges. I think the first thing is sometimes, and most of the times rather, the young people are not part of identifying the issues. So YEP comes and say, okay, or the Dutch fund or some kind of or European fund, somebody comes in and say, okay, there is 3 million euros on the, on the, on the, on the table, but it's for the fashion industry. Is that really where... Is that really what the, the young people want? So the lack of engagement with the young people is a problem. And this is, I've heard this over and over and over um, from different um, um, young people in different parts of the world, that they are not part of the decision making. So what this is doing is, is shifting their mission away from the original, um, uh, w- the reason why they, they came into existence in the first place. So they're following the funding, not necessarily making an impact with their programs. So they are actually funding our, you know, the, 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 the donor agencies are allowing our young people then to fund their priorities. Immigration, IOM, right now migration is an issue. I'm not picking on migration, but, you know, I, I see a lot of our young people in different parts and they're doing different um, nonprofit work, but they're shifting their focus now into migration because IOM has a lot of money that they are shifting in, in Africa and in, 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 in other parts to kind of come up with innovative programs to let people stay in their own countries. For example, um, uh, the EU is now funding something in Gambia called Tekifi, which means if you loosely translated, make it here, meaning make it here in the Gambia. So they're coming up with different programs um, to allow young people to stay in the country is very laudable. I mean, it's fantastic, you know, you get people to stay. 
but what exactly are you doing for them to allow them to stay? What kind of what what kind of programs? You know, so we have to really question the types of programs. Are they sustainable? Are these programs that are actually going to allow people to have skills that are going life skills that is actually going to allow them to have um, a meaningful uh, uh, lives? Yeah, and beyond life skills, like actual skills that they can leverage to to earn an income. And sustain themselves. And for those who are looking to legitimately grow businesses, where's the funding for that? So, Pop, I know that right now you are the global vice president and executive director for Ashoka Africa, um, which has a bigger global profile. Can you tell us about that work and what does access to funding look like for um, Ashoka social entrepreneurs? Yes, um... Yeah, what, what has pretty much is um, building uh, what we call a, a system change field or sectors, uh, which means really how do we create a new framework around development, around international development to get everybody, all the different players within the ecosystem to understand that we have to collaborate. We understand that uh, we need a new leadership uh, style to understand as well that um, the change making needs to happen everywhere because uh, what Ashoka believes is there is there are so many challenges that are being happening in this world and we don't have enough people who are addressing those challenges. Mm-hmm. So, uh, even so, the- Pap, um, so um, sorry to, to interrupt you. So for our listeners who might not know what Ashoka is, can you just give us a little introduction uh, to put it in context? Yes, Ashoka is... Uh, uh, the leading organization in social entrepreneurship who pretty much created the concept of uh, social entrepreneurship in the 1982, where they believe that we don't only you don't only need entrepreneurs in the world, we need also social entrepreneurs, meaning entrepreneurs who are, uh, who are solving their own problems in their local communities. So um, 38 years ago, um, the founder of Ashoka went around and uh, resigned from his job and went around the world, especially in India first and said, you know, every problem we're trying to address, the local community knows the best the solution and we should rely on them to address it. So that's really how Ashoka started. It's a global uh, non-profit organization focusing on identifying, selecting social entrepreneurs who are uh, creating solutions that influence policies and solving problems around the world. So, good, maybe so how good. are those um, change makers that are funded through Ashoka, um, how how are they funded? Like, where do they get money to help them grow their social entrepreneur um, enterprises? So there is a difference between the change makers and the fellows. Well, the fellows are Ashoka social entrepreneurs. Okay, so um, let's talk about that. What's the difference? <laughs> yeah, so the, the fellows, Ashoka social entrepreneurs, are entrepreneurs are not startups at all. These are, you know, successful leading entrepreneurs who already have changed national policies in their countries, have replicated their models elsewhere in a different country, and have tackled a problem that nobody tackled, uh, addressed before. That's the fellows. And uh, the Pap, young... Pap, we're having a little bit of issues with your audio. You're coming in and out. Oh, sorry. Are you recording yourself on your um, voice memo? Yes, I am. Are you recording yourself? Yeah. Okay, that's good because on this end, you're coming in and out. So at least we can have your files. Yeah, I can send you. You can keep going. Yeah. 
All right, um, thank you. Yeah, and I was saying that the, the, for, as for the young change maker, it's different. These are pretty much startups. These are pretty much well, the those people that Gene is serving who are starting up businesses, uh, solving problems, and uh, growing businesses. So that's really the difference between uh, the fellows and the young uh, change maker. But in terms of uh, accessing funding, I think the problem is exactly the same as I mean I described. Uh, with the fellows, what we do is Ashoka itself, as a global organization, uh, try to fundraise and give them annual stipends. Annual stipends is an equivalent of a salary we give to fellows for uh, for three years, allowing them to develop and build up their, their businesses and their ideas. Uh, for the young change makers, uh, we give them only seed money, around $1,000 for them to start uh, new businesses. Uh, in that case, it's different from Gene because Gene is more of all, um, more uh, it's bigger and it's more uh, about um, unemployment, entrepreneurship, and other sectors. But for young change maker with Ashoka, it's just the seed money to develop their idea, and we're focusing more on uh, uh, how do we get them to also solve local problems to become a pipeline for our fellows, for the Ashoka fellows. So these are the younger fellows that we tap into to elect fellows. Uh, but where, where everywhere we have. Have, we always have problems. One is um, uh, in terms of defining the, the request for proposal. Most of the times, the social entrepreneurs are not part of it, so they don't really know. Uh, they're not framed into the framework. So for them to access the fund, it's difficult. If you're asking them also for, um, for economic impact, it becomes difficult for them to translate, even though they might have it or they might have programs who are addressing also um, unemployment. They don't know how to evaluate that or how to de describe it because the social focus is really what takes over their model. Um, and also taking over government money or big foundations or corporate money be becomes difficult because they don't have, most of the time, they don't have the, the right structure. Um, most banks or investors don't understand the social enterprise model. Therefore, even in the legal system of most countries, they don't have really a a typical type of incorporation for a social enterprise. You have to either to incorporate for both a non-profit and a business, or you just go and find a hybrid model that might not have the legal framework for you to incorporate. So there is a challenge, a legal challenge for social entrepreneurs to access funds by defining what type of organization they're running, but also there is a business model challenge here where they don't know how to develop a business model to be able to attract the funding. So funding is really, really, really difficult. Uh, most of our fellows, 95% of our fellows were funded by Ashoka through the stipend program to develop it. And um, they're still figuring out what type of model they have. They need to develop either business or a nonprofit. Even us with Ashoka, we're still figuring out that because at, uh, in our early Yes, the first 10 years, we were not really supporting a business model, uh, entrepreneur, social entrepreneurs. Uh, a few years ago, we kind of changed that. Right now, the question is back on the table, and we're trying to figure out you know, what to do with that. So it's quite a big challenge that we working like with everybody, like everybody else to try to figure out what is the solution to that. Thanks. Pat, that's really helpful. I think it's it's one of those major issues that, um, you know, in the outset we've we've discussed this quite a few times during our podcast with other um, 
with with you know with other guests around the the concept of you know planning for funding and planning for finance and just the challenge that that presents in the outset and then long you know long term so as it relates to that we have a question one of my favorite topics is data so can you talk to or speak to how many entrepreneurs receive seed funding and technical support from programs implemented by GYIN um, and how how many have sort of graduated to larger follow-on funding to scale and grow? Okay, Lydia. So thank you for that question. Data is always a big problem in nonprofits, big or small. And when I say big problem is you can never find data or you can't have good data. Even when you have the data, it's usually in paper and you have to digitize it and figure it out. Um, So for the gene, since we have different chapters, uh, gathering data can be a little bit of a challenge because each chapter have their own um, data. And when Michelle reached out to me about this, I did reach out, but I'm still waiting on the exact numbers. Some did send me some um, information. Um, so, so, for example, in the Gambia, they, um, from um, the Gambia, but I'll speak more to the YEP um, grant that was giving the project. Um, the goal was really a 10-month project to um, mentor 50 young people on social enterprises and um, help them grow their businesses. So out of the 50, 41 was able to register their businesses and start something um, out of that. And two of them are currently looking for funding to expand. And when I say expansion, I mean just another location or opening another store. So we are talking about small scale here. We're not talking about um, funding for something major uh, like, you know, looking for funding to have a regional presence somewhere else. So right now it's just a lot of the young people are working with, they're just trying to scale up in terms of, oh, I want to open another um, location or I want to expand my farm. I, we do have one measure, uh, this young man in the Gamu has, um, I think, about 40 hectares of land that's worth about $3 million that he's trying to, he's looking for funding right now. He's looking for $400,000. And he has $200,000, but he's looking for four hundred dollars to be able to expand. And he wants to do cashew um, uh, processing. He has his, um, a farm and he wants to do processing. So, and my question to him, I was just talking to him before I, I jumped on this, on this call. Who have you reached out to about this funding? Like, what is the problem? Where are you trying to get the money from? And he said to me, I'm trying to get money from the Social Development Fund, which is a, 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 a fund that's set up by the government. And um, they're going to give me half of that. And then I have to find another, like half of the 400. And then I have to find an, an additional 200. And I said, well, who have you reached out to? He's like, well, I'm reaching out to everyone and, and, and anyone who will listen to what I have to say. I have my business proposal. I've talked to the minister. So I guess what I'm trying to get at is that they're looking everywhere for funding. So it's really hard to... Not only I, I, I get frustrated and passionate at the same time, you know, when I'm talking about this, 
they are trying to get the funding, but it's hard for me to keep track if I can only talk about one or two people because I don't have enough data to really tell you this is what's happening. This is a success story. We've been able to do this. We've, you know, we're not being able to do this because each gene chapter secure their own data. Maybe that's one thing I need to work on, having like one database where everyone can just kind of dump data in there. But each chapter have their own information. And once I have that, I'll be able to send it to you. But data is always a problem. And that's not only in um, for Gene Case, in every nonprofit I've ever worked with, getting accurate data, getting data on time, it's always, always a problem. So um, that's what we're facing right now. So I cannot really tell you exactly how many of them have been able to scale up. And even if they do scale up, there are always challenges into the direction of, yeah. Same, I would definitely say the idea around being able to collate and come up with sort of a portfolio-wide analysis of what's working and what's not, and then sort of the downstream impacts um, and evaluating, you know, what's what interventions have been um, useful, what hasn't, what, what you can attribute to um, success, what you can't. I mean, that the whole monitoring and evaluation and learning component of this is yeah. so critical and um yeah it's just it's there there, there can never be too no. much data and that's one thing i've been trying also trying to get them to realize that data is, is king because you need data to show donors and um supporters that hey look at what i'm doing and i'm successful come help me out but if we're not collecting the data even as the parent company as a parent organization then you know that's an issue right there. So we also trying to yeah. um, let them understand or have them understand how important um, data is and um, the importance of collecting those data to be able to show, like, as you just mentioned, what's working, what's not, especially if you're going for funding. Lydia, are you there? I am, yes. Oh, there's another part of the question oh, for Pat. Okay, so yeah, so Pat, same question to you. What type of um, data um, does Ashoka keep on entrepreneurs? And, um, you know, how, how, how have you been assessing follow-on finance to scale and grow? Yes, um, so I think the problem is still the same everywhere, as I mean, I said. Um, here we know... Um, at Ashoka, we know how many fellows we elected uh, in 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 Africa. So just focusing on Africa, not globally. Uh, Six hundred fellows were elected in Africa, but we still don't know, um, you know, how many of those those of those fellows still active in the project that we were they were elected for. How many of those still um, alive? How many of those changed or moved? So it's something that we're still collecting. Uh, in terms of funding, all of them receive funding from Ashoka, all 600. How many of them receive funding from elsewhere? We don't track that. And also that's something that we've been developing because they receive funding from different partners or they're looking for funding and they have challenge for funding. But what we know for sure, we have an annual survey that we do just to understand uh, where fellows are in terms of uh, uh, growing in, in their business or scaling up their business or globalizing it, as we say, their business. Uh, we know that all of them express funding as the number one need for them to be able to, to move up. 
or to grow their business. Um, in terms of impact of what we're doing, the support we're providing from uh, Ashoka, uh, we know that uh, 90% of our fellows replicates their model uh, within um, uh, five years to another country or to different countries. We know that 70% of them uh, influence national policies within five years. Uh, we also know that all of them, 100% of them, needs funding to be able to keep up with their program uh, after the first three years. So there is a lot of work that needs to be done, still needs to be done in terms of uh, collecting data in regard to impact, in regard to funding, in regard to capacity building. But I think the most challenging one for, for us um, is uh, how many of our fellows actually are impacting their local communities and are influencing national policies, as uh, I mean, I was saying at the beginning, because we still believe that policy is really important. So that's why I focus on system change approach. But the funding uh, challenge is still there. If you have to take care of your family and you don't you, you resign from your job or you have a job, so you don't have enough time to, to put on your pro program. If you resign from your job, you don't have enough money maybe to put on the table. So it's a chicken and egg pro uh, uh, problem there that we're facing. And if you, you don't, the entrepreneur doesn't have enough time to run their business, they don't have any time at all to be able to collect data, which is another problem. So you have to find somebody to do it, a consultant to do it, and the minor do it as well as um, the entrepreneur himself or herself. So yeah, that's really where we are in terms of um, data. We, we, we learning as we go, we collecting data, um, every year from the fellows. We're bringing other partners to also help out with putting together data, like uh, uh, I think what also happened to Jean. Well, thank you for that, um, Pap and Amina. We are at the point in the show where we have to ask, WTF, where's the funding? And so these series of questions is for both of you. Either of you can, can answer in terms of what needs to be done to make funding more accessible for entrepreneurs in Africa that is not currently being done. So the questions are, what role should development institutions play? What role should philanthropy pay, play? What role should social impact investors play? Angel investors, the government? So there are different actors that are in the space, like what are the roles and responsibility of each of these various actors in terms of making funding more accessible? Um, you can pick either one, any of the, the ones that you can speak more intelligently to and go with that. I'll let Amina go first since she's more oh. intelligent. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean it in that way. <laughs> well, okay. But I know Dr. Amina, and I know she's quite intelligent. <laughs> the pressure's on I'm Amina. listening to the question, and I everyone, every name that every stakeholder that you mentioned, I'm like, well, they have a role to play. But I think yeah, every one of them have a role to play. But I think for me, it's uh, the level of involvement. So I will rank order every one of them in in regards to their their the level of involvement that's necessary. For example, development agencies might be at the bottom, government might be um, in the middle, angel investors at the top there. But every one of those stakeholders or actors have a role to play in um, getting the funding. It's just how we stratify them on the ladder of funding is different is where the differences come into play 
right? For me, that's how I look at it. They all have a role to play, but it's the stratification that matters. Yeah, I think for me, um, what in addition to what um, Amina said, um, there are two things. The first one for me is that there is one role that all of them should play, and it's simple, it's easy, it's just to trust the entrepreneur. If the young person, old person, female, male, doesn't matter, just trust the entrepreneur and listen to them. Don't come up with, you know, guidelines don't come up with um, with norms don't come up with uh, protocols or programs before you understand the type of funding and the type of model you want to fund so listen and uh, trust the local communities and the entrepreneurs if you depending on the mission that you want so that's one that all of them should play and i don't think they're playing it enough um or any of them is playing that because they're all focusing on their own mission trying to address a problem for a community that needs a change that you don't even know or you don't even ask for to, to get to know, but you just come up with your own. Um, well, how likely do you think that is that they'll actually do well, that? Yeah, though? that's a good question because I think that's one of the no. things I said in the beginning of the podcast was that what I'm noticing in all of our uh, chapters is this lack of trust, like the money is shrinking and I, I'm beginning to question whether you know, they don't trust young people to implement. Yeah. I think part yeah. of it is that um, whether you're, you're you're coming from the development institution side or the philanthropy side or, you know, any of these things, like these organizations, they have their objectives about what they want to do and how they need to do it. And it also depends on where their money is coming from. And there are also guidelines around their funding that they get to reallocate. So sometimes they don't always get to decide where they want to put the money to, because even if you're, you know, you're running a social impact investment organization, like if you're, if you've raised funds from lots of different bodies to put that fund together, there are requirements from those donors about how those funds can be used. So how likely is it that they can just go out there and lead by saying, okay, you tell us what you need and we'll go with that. As opposed to, well, we have to put some guidelines in place to secure our investment. But and especially if you're coming from the angel side or things like that, where there's a, an expectation of some kind of return on investment, how do you secure that? But that's exactly the problem, I think, because um, you... You, what one program cannot achieve two conflicting goals. That's impossible. It, if the goals are conflicting, it cannot achieve it. So you're, you're right. All of them, they have uh, stakeholders, they have shareholders, and they have their own interests. But we're no longer in a, in a um, divided ecosystem. We are in one big global ecosystem. So if each organization has their own goal and want to achieve it, then it won't work. We're not saying that they should forget about their interests and their goal at all. What we're saying is that it should be a co-creation. You cannot come in 90% and ask the person to put in 10% and then leave all the deliverable on the person who is providing 10%. That's impossible. So the likelihood of happening, yes, that's a good question. We don't know how likely this will happen. 
But I think what's clear for now is that the ecosystem is changing more and more. And even if we see what's happening right now with COVID, we always see that changes are happening every day and we don't know what's happening tomorrow. Nobody could have predicted what's happening right now. So for me, this is a clear example that if you're working with somebody, listen to them more and try to co-create. If you cannot even do 50-50, at least try to make it you know, 60-40 to, to listen to them. But coming up with all those guidelines, every organization has a mission that's defined, but it's defined from their own angle. You know, we want to have, if, for example, if you go to investors, uh, either the impact, social impact or the angel investors, every year they, they will tell you how much money they want to invest and how, many, how much return they want. That's already very strict. If you go to government, they should play more about the policies, like I, mean, I was saying, you know, making a, policies that are a little bit loose, but to make policy, you have to understand who you're making it for. If you are at the helm of the government institution, you don't deal with local communities to learn with them. Your what will inform or educate your policy to be made? If you go to to philanthropy, philanthropy is all about the social aspect that we're addressing to mobilize resources to address it. You're not talking to them. So institutions are on one side, but the community communities are on the other side. And everything that institutions are doing are for the communities. So we should really find that shared value, that intersection where communities are leading in terms of providing the data, the knowledge for institutions to develop uh, programs, policies, and activities that really address those things. Otherwise, I think it will be definitely the problem. And uh, I, my bet is that you know, even if we don't change, we are realizing that we need to change and it's going to grow in the next. Yeah, I, I think that's, 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 that's very true because there's a disconnect. The social capital between the um, investors and the communities is not there. And if you don't have social capital, there's going to be no bridging and bonding, no productive benefits is going to be involved. And the idea of trust and not listening has come up over and over and over again. And everywhere when you sit with the community is like, they don't trust us. They're not listening to us. We know our problems. We know our challenges. We know where the funding should go. But they come in here and they think they know. They're telling us this is where we need to put the money. That's not where we want to put our money. I hear it all the time. So there has to be bridging and bonding. That social capital has to be built. And, of course, it's the big why. I mean, how in this case is how are we going to do it? How are we going to you know, build a bridge and then bond people? I think you make a really good point about this, the the need really for social auditing, you know, basically for a community to, uh, to hold, you know, people trying to make an impact in their particular jurisdiction accountable for how they do that. And when, you know, when initiatives happen without that stakeholder engagement being the driver, you get misalignment. And I think that, you know, the, the timing of many of these sort of project based initiatives is sort of three to five years. And that horizon really doesn't lend itself to sort of long term institution mm -hmm. and entrepreneurship building, which is really the, a life cycle. And so sort of seeing how the sequencing and how the diversification of 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 how you know, philanthropy and angel investors and government can work together in, in what Pat mentioned as that shared value. I think you are going to see that develop 
in in response to COVID-19. It's going to have to in order to address the multiple cascade of issues that we're seeing before us. So it, it will definitely be a sort of a, an incubator of, of mammoth proportions, I could see. Well, Lydia, why don't you wrap us up and take us home? <laughs> sure. Okay. Well, thank you so much um, for your insights about um, Jen and Ashoka and your amazing efforts related to youth entrepreneurship. Um, before we go, can you let us know where people can find you if they have uh, more questions or would like more information? Yes. So if you visit us on our website, www gyin.org um, so we're on, online and if you need more information you can email us at info at uh, gene.org and we can send you any information that you need um, I just can I just say a huge thank you to you guys but also to our coordinators who were able to gather information and send to me on a very short notice uh, Fabrice in Togo, Delma in Ivory Coast Dramin in Mali, Idrissa in Gambia uh, they'll share in Mauritania and all of these young men and women out there were just trying to make it work. So if you out there, you know where the funding is, please let us know so we can also let them know. And thank you to Pop for um, joining us. And actually, I know he has a very busy schedule, but for um, allowing Gene to continue and not allowing you to die down when he stepped aside. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, thank you. Great. Pat, where can people, yeah, where can people find you, Pat? Yeah, www.ashoka.org or on Facebook as well, the Ashoka page, or um, you can just go to our office in Arlington um, by the Roseland Metro. And Wonderful. Thank everybody, well, thank, thank you for having oh. us. Thanks to Amina for her leadership and thanks to, you know, Michelle as well and Lydia. Thank you so much. Well, this wraps up another episode. Um, please rate, like, and subscribe and share our podcast to those that would be interested. Looking forward to connecting with all our listeners sometime soon. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks. Have a good weekend. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. All right. Thanks, guys. Really great show. I really enjoy hearing sort of two sides of, um, a, you know, a particular initiative or an initiative where sort of one person is handing off the baton to somebody else. And I think, you know, hearing Pap's story and then hearing, you know, Amina's take on moving um um, Gene forward was just really insightful. And then, you know, as we discussed the idea about trust and understanding that youth entrepreneurs are motivated above all else to be successful and really exploring what the trust element in terms of them funding and financing their own businesses and being their own architects for business growth and economic development and and, and what that really means for the sector. I think um that was a great discussion and gave me a lot to think about. Yeah. And through the show, you know, just trying to make sure that we are being connected to those voices coming from those spaces to really hear them 
because they have a lot to say and I get the feeling that they don't feel heard. And I definitely heard Amina loud and clear in her representation of the young entrepreneurs that she works with through Jean around, again, this conversation of trust. And a part of lack of trust is a lack of understanding and a lot of a lack of listening to what those people have to say and understanding that there is a lot that they do know and there's a lot of self-direction there. So thanks again for tuning in to another episode and we hope that we see you again for future episodes and don't forget, we really want to hear from you. So if you have any suggestions about you know topics for the show or want to provide us any feedback, we are very open to hearing from you. So please email us at where's the funding at gmail.com. And again, please, after you listen, like, rate, um, review, 